Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Matters podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mike Holman. Mike, how you doing? Doing great. And Kartik Sobramian. Kartik, what's going on? Yeah, things are good. Fine. Thanks. Happy to join. So this is Innovation Matters. This is the first episode of Innovation Matters, and it's a podcast about sustainable innovation in particular, right? Which is sort of this broad and nebulous category that includes, depending on who you ask, everything from, you know, more efficient ways to get oil out of the ground because that uses less energy and that's sustainable to, um, you know, only the most sort of farm to table, agricultural, uh, earthy, crunchy types of, of practices. Mike, I wanted to just start off by just asking you and, and asking in general, what is, beyond what is sustainable innovation, what are we doing here? Why are, why are we talking about it in particular? Well, we, we thought it'd be fun to do a podcast. I think that's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's uh, the basic idea. You know, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it's there's a lot of interesting stuff that's that's going on, obviously in this in this sort of area of, of sustainable innovation today. Um, we spend a lot of time, you know, our day jobs at Lux Research are you know stud- talking to interesting startups in this area, talking to our clients, talking to each other about all of this uh, these kind of really interesting um, developments that are happening to hopefully you know, to try to address climate change, to try to address, you know, global health, to try to address plastic waste and these, some of these big sort of issues. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's really good and cool. There's a lot of stuff that's really kind of BS that we like, you know, calling out and making fun of and, and, uh, and a lot of stuff somewhere in between. And I thought it'd be just a good, to be, it'd be fun and be interesting, hopefully, to other people to to have some of those uh, those conversations recorded and and uh, and share them with the world. I think that really captures it, and I would particularly call out the BS angle because there is a lot of fear mongering, disinformation, bad analysis, well meaning but wrong stuff floating around especially when it comes to the long-term ramifications and the long-term sort of predictions around the sustainable economy and i think you've seen this you know in the energy space in particular and kartik that's where your background is right um but we see this across a pretty wide range of different areas actually for me the most interesting aspect on why uh, we should be doing the innovation matters podcast is that, you know, looking inside out from, you know, what we do at Lux Research with energy. Uh, I feel the general idea for people is that to, you know, become low carbon at some point, it's just about rate of deployment right now. All technologies are mature and there is no innovation in the space. Uh, it, because, you know, when everyone thinks about low carbon, people only think about solar and wind. And they say, you know, mm. put as many solar panels as you can, you know, deploy as many wind turbines as you can. And they don't look at what's beyond, you know, solar and wind. Is there anything else out there that people should be looking at? And like Mike said, you know, there are a lot of interesting innovations that are popping up 
that we had lux research look at so it would be nice to you know uh bring that information out to a wider audience yeah and one of those areas that we're seeing a, a lot of innovation activity on is this issue of critical minerals and that's one of the things we want to talk about today we're recording this on July 10th 2023 in case we uh we make it to another year with this podcast <laughs> And just recently, there's this article in the FT that I wanted to talk about, which was titled, um, I think, No Country Can Solve Critical Mineral Shortages Alone. And this kind of fell into the sort of time-honored category of scaremongering about the availability of natural resources. And I think this one is, in terms of the long history of scaremongering about natural resources, probably on the, the better intention side of the spectrum, but it, it really frustrated me in a lot of different ways. First, it, it starts with this, this great set of lines. Fast forward to 2031, the EU exhausted its $250 billion green deal and the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is winding down um, and things are not going well. And so already it just starts with the assumption that like, oh, we're not going to do anything or pass any other major policy. No, nothing's going to happen between now and 2031 that might like affect the course of this, this energy transition. And it goes on to talk about how broadly we have to build a lot of mines, we have to extract a lot of natural resources for the energy transition to happen, and it's likely to be a big bottleneck. Um, I'll open up to you first, Mike. What did you think about this article? And um, I, I have a lot more to say about it, but before I, I continue my ranting and raving, what, what did you two think about this? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you're right to call this sort of uh, fear mongering. I mean, it could have been, it, it, and it is a definitely a, a kind of a classic of the genre, though I would say like at least it didn't call, you know, country X, the Saudi Arabia of Y or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but it's, but it's thanks for that. But it's um, you know, I mean, you always get these things happening. And like, I remember one of the things that I worked on a report back in probably two thousand eight or so, which was like, is there going to be enough tellurium for the scale up of like cadmium cell, uh, cadmium telluride solar panels, or is there going to be enough indium to scale up, uh, copper indium SIGs, copper indium gallium selenide solar cells, right? And we're so you know we've kind of always been looking at these questions of critical minerals for any any new technology and you know while there's often some bumps along the way we saw big price spikes in lithium last year right um mm -hmm. you know these things do the, the the most dire predictions never never really seem to come to pass um that's right. people do figure things out things do change uh, innovations happen uh, policy changes happen um you know investment happens so you know, I, and I do think, you know, part of the reason those things happen is because people write scaremongering articles about it and people pay attention to right. those articles. And then they, you know, then then the responses that they have is one of the things that helps to, to, to solve the problem. So I'm not I'm not against this, uh, uh, this sort of thing happening. But I think if you're if you're thinking about, you know, as you were saying, right, particularly for the longer term uh, perspective, uh, you don't want to get too too knocked off course by this sort of thing. Yeah, and we are seeing a lot of innovation happening in these different spaces, trying to 
either eliminate the need for critical minerals or do better extraction of critical minerals. I mean, Kartik, you were telling me that you're tracking a lot of startups um, in, in this space, right? Um, I would say uh, I, most of the startups that are in this space are on the extraction side, uh, especially in energy. If you look at extraction for lithium from geothermal brine, things like that. Uh, but the ones that are actually replacing critical minerals are very small. So I know in the wind and energy industry, uh, people have been asking questions about how do we replace the need for samarium and uh, neodymium and press press mm-hmm. press modemium. Uh, that's a tough <laughs> press, element. Press to call. Yeah, yeah presodymium. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, and, we'll and they're all used worry. in these uh, permanent magnets. All right. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, uh, so I've, I've only known two companies from the United Kingdom, two startups that are actually looking into replacing them with, you know, non-critical mineral ferrous magnets. Uh, so I don't think the interest is there in replacing critical minerals, but looking at how we can take care of, you know, our existing uh, resources and how we can extract them better or how we can recycle them so that we keep reusing them. Um, I would say that's more of the area of focus in terms of innovation. Yeah, and I think a, a big. But a question to policy. both of you because you both are in the mineral space. Uh, so in India, um, Kashmir, which is a you know very disputed region, um, has come into a lot of attention recently because apparently there are lithium reserves that have been there for a long time, and. Um, you know, because China and Pakistan are, you know, so closely bordering that region. There's a lot of talk that if India gets its hand on those reserves first, then the the amount of lithium that can be produced from there is so high that it can even eclipse China in terms of EV battery production from lithium-ion, for example. So do you see the issue with critical minerals being sort of a, we are running out of resources? Um, so, you know, that's why they're becoming critical. Or do you think it's a supply chain accessibility issue with critical minerals? Yeah, I think it's pretty consistently a supply chain accessibility issue to the extent that it even is. Um, it's really a, a political issue, right? And first, you know, there's always, there's pretty consistently been discovery of new resources, right? Every time people say, you, you see this with the history of oil, right? Where it's like, consistently underestimated the the amount of oil that's yep. available and the accessibility of that oil, right? And just last week, part of the reason why we wanted to talk about this, there was this uh, new story about a huge discovery of phosphate rock in Norway, I think. And you might not know this, but uh, phosphorus is actually a critical mineral. Um, you need it for fertilizer, and it's, it's quite important for life. Uh, and we use a lot of it and it's pretty limited in terms of where it comes from. But so there were real concerns about, you know, a phosphate shortage. There's actually a, a Wikipedia article titled peak phosphorus. I think uh, it's, it's pretty incredible, but you know, there was this new discovery of a huge deposit of rock. And it goes to show you that there's just a lot, a lot of uh, earth out there. That's still pretty solidly untapped. Um, and then, you know, the the India, I think, piece fits in pretty pretty cleanly with that idea. Yeah, I mean, and there's all sorts of things. I mean, you, you 
there's the earth that's untapped. I mean, with lithium, we're starting to get pretty good at extracting it from from various you know brines and clays, as opposed to the the sort of traditional, um, you know, types of sources. So there's you can find new ways to extract the minerals from from different types of sources. You can extract them more efficiently. You can you can recycle them. Uh, you can you can find you know alternatives. People are working on sodium ion batteries, and that's a you know, 30 years mm-hmm. from now is, is lithium. Are we even really still going to need lithium for batteries? Maybe, maybe not, but there's a lot of different directions that, that these things can, can go in. You know, and I think people in innovation teams, right, still need to worry, you know, if you're planning a lithium ion battery factory or, 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 or something that's going to be dependent upon, upon that, you still need to be aware of this. And there's a lot of potential for price spikes and supply disruptions and things along the way. But I think, you know, the, the perspective of there just isn't enough of mineral, you know, this mineral to, to do as much as we need to is, is usually not the case. Well, if we do actually run out of lithium or phosphorus or nickel, or copper. The copper one's so interesting as well because um, we consume a lot of copper for stuff that is not super useful or sort of, I don't know. It, it, we have a lot of copper. There is just a lot of copper in general running around. We could really melt down all the you know, copper cookware if we really wanted to. It's not like uh, lithium where it's it's <laughs> you're really starting from a very low base. Um, but you know, there's still people saying, oh, we're going to run out of copper. Copper extraction is going to get a lot harder. Um, and, and I think there's just a lot of reason to be skeptical about those kinds of things. But if any of that happens, you will hear about it here on the Innovation Matters podcast. Coming up in our next segment, we have a conversation with a, a really interesting colleague of ours, uh, Ujwal, who leads our Consumer Insights Division here at Lux. And we're talking about how the consumer perception of all these different issues fits in with the long-term innovation. And I think, you know, as we talked about this, this kind of fear-mongering around critical minerals really plays into these ideas of consumer perception being crucial to the long-term sort of trajectory of the innovation space. So we'll hear more from him on that. Welcome back, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this episode, Ujwal Arkelgood. He is the founder, the co-founder, I should say, of Motiveface. He's now an executive vice president of Lux Research, author of two books, I believe, and he is an anthropologist. Ujwal, how are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you on. So I wanted to start with a basic question. What is anthropology? Because I would expect a lot of our listeners wouldn't know. I didn't know, really, before you joined the company. Uh, And how does one become an anthropologist? Usually, when people talk about anthropology, I think they think bones. But the part of anthropology that we deal with is social anthropology or cultural anthropology, which is Mm -hmm. uh, really the study of meaning, the shared meanings that are created in 
and that exist within contexts. Usually, a simple way to think about it is a group of people establish a certain set of norms, rituals, habits, and once those norms are established, that group doesn't really need to describe things. They just do things. They have their own little language. We often find this among our own friend circles sometimes or in our families. We just kind of get each other. That's a classic example of what anthropology deals with, which is to decode then what are those you know, symbols, what are those meanings that exist and are shared within a particular group dynamic. Obviously, here we apply it to culture more broadly, either seen through the lens of products, solutions, seen through the lens of you know, specific issues, trends, what have you. And how did you become an anthropologist or what excited you, I guess? What, what drew you to this as a, a field of study? I was actually I was actually doing my engineering and somebody handed me a fairly dense book by Ludwig Wittgenstein and it was a sort of I guess foundationally you could call it a seminal piece of work driving structuralism and post-structuralism in the and the field of anthropology as it exists today. Uh, it was a really weird book and I and for somebody who's never read philosophy before it was the most odd thing to, to come across. But for some reason, I was really drawn to it. Maybe it was the oddness of it. Uh, the book is written in almost like bullet points, which, which <laughs> no uh, philosopher ever writes in. Yeah. I think that as was a, partly also what As a excited former me. philosophy major, I can confirm Wittgenstein is weird, even for people who wrote a lot of philosophy. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously, it was his, his first book. And uh, uh, I think I, I can't... I don't know if this is right, but I think he actually uh, developed some severe mental health issues later in his life. And and his later work, some of his later work is even difficult to decipher, uh, but clearly a brilliant mind. But in essence, the, the crux of what he talked about was if you want to understand what things mean, you simply have to look at the structure of language around it because the structure of language around ideas changes all the time. And that change itself teaches us so much about what it is. I think that's a great segue to kind of the broader topic here, which is this intersection of anthropology and meaning and innovation. Because there is a lot of contention right now about the meaning of, you know, particularly sustainable innovation. But I think innovation even a bit more broadly. You know, you look at something like Bitcoin, blockchain, there are people, maybe I'm one of them, who would say, ah, this isn't an innovation at all. This is just something old that's been wrapped in a new, you know, an old set of ideas that's been wrapped in a new sort of technological shell. But I'm curious, how do companies use this type of anthropological, whether it's anthropology research or anthropology, you know, the thought leadership that your company generates, how is that being used today? And I also want to discuss how it'll be used in the future. I think the biggest reason why we have a place in the world of research and innovation is, you know, innovation leaders really struggle to understand why things are happening the way they're happening. There's a lot of data points to see what's happening. And, and certainly there's a lot of data points from, you know, I would say big research organizations talking about, you know, trends for the next 10 years but it's very difficult for them to really understand the why. And the why is really rooted in meaning. 
and you know this is not new by the way you know the field of anthropology and sociology has existed for the better part of a hundred years and it talks extensively about how when things carry meaning they create currency symbolic currency it's just like trading money we all trade the symbolic currency as a way to feel like we're part of a social circle a group feel like we're Mm -hmm. you know doing better than our peers or whatever else that might be and meaning creates currency and then we trade that currency the thing is if you don't understand what things mean and how that meaning is changing you are missing this you've got this huge gap of the why and without the why it's so difficult to figure out how you can build a a sustainable strategy moving forward not just for sustainability but for innovation mm-hmm. in general yeah and i think that's the one of the interesting things to to dig into is what is the kind of research that you and your team do tell us about sustainability in particular because i mean we get some obvious questions like, oh, are consumers willing to pay a 10% or 20% premium for a more sustainable product in these areas? But what you're getting at is something a little bit deeper than that, like how they really, what is the meaning that they really assign to sustainability and how people are are thinking about that and, you know, what it says about them that they're purchasing Mm -hmm. something sustainable. What is, what do you, what do you see when you start to look at those sustainability related issues using these kind of uh, techniques? I mean, sustainability is actually the classic example right now, because if you ask a consumer or you do some kind of, you know, direct analytics and big data analysis, which a lot of uh, these large companies do, they get the obvious logical stuff, right? They get what we call logical expressions of the idea of sustainability, which is, hey, it's better for people, it's better for the future generations, better for the planet, of course, I'm going to do this. And in a world where our sense of morality is a fleeting idea day by day. We try to grab onto whatever little sense of moral compass we can get. And sustainability has become one of those things. Mm-hmm. The problem, though, is that you take that and you go, great, people really care about the planet. And then you bring these solutions to life and then they don't sell. Or you don't meet the business goals you have and you try to figure out what did we miss so this is a classic example where when we dig into the meaning around it, we realize, of course, people do care. It's not that people don't care about the planet, but ultimately it always comes down to what is this thing going to do for me? So I'll give you one example. If you look at the food landscape, sustainability is a proxy for healthier. So there's this assumption that a sustainable product is also a healthier product. So now let's say I'm a dessert company and I launch a sustainable dessert Will that sell? No, I have a problem there. Unless I find a way to make my dessert the healthiest dessert possible. And now I've got Mm. some complexity to deal with in terms of types of ingredients, in terms of taste and flavoring agents and all that stuff. But that's in essence what we really deal with is help figure out what is it becoming a proxy of? Because if we can figure that out, then we can tell clients what other, you know, quote unquote, cultural requirements they have to meet to make something successful or, you know, something um, exciting for the consumer. I'm curious as how you view that on a macro level, because people's perceptions of things change, right? And I mean, I remember Al Gore kind of getting laughed at maybe 20 years ago, and environmentalism was sort of this, 
I don't know, loony thing, right? That people were not very receptive to, or it was sort of a joke. And now it's, it's very different. I think the perception has changed. So is that kind of broader perception change just part of that moral compass realigning? Or is there something more meaningful there that is separate from these sort of micro decisions? It's a great question. It's almost as if, so because we measure maturity with our technology, you can, it's almost like you can see this pathway where the moral compass is leading the way and it gives you this false sense of security and it creates this perception that this is relevant to everybody now. But the moment you put this lens of, okay, what does it really mean? What other requirements exist around it? You realize actually there, you know, niche is not the right word because that makes it sound very small. It's not, it's, mm -hmm. we're still talking about millions of people. If you take the U S as an example or Europe as an example, it's still millions of people, but it's just smaller communities of people within certain contexts. And what we're finding is the meaning of sustainability in the context of food is different from the meaning of sustainability in the context of technology, different from what it means in the context of, you know, let's say personal care products. You know, I'll give you an example, cleaning products. Sustainability um, is a proxy for uh, something being um, less efficacious, and that's a problem, right? So if I can't figure out that that's the proxy, then I don't know what problem to solve. So let's say I have a sustainability mandate. I have to solve this problem. Really, the problem I have to solve perceptually is that this is just as efficacious or more efficacious than the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Until I solve that problem, I can't push the sustainable solution forward, even though people really want it. And that's the balancing act. So it's really untangling those. What's attached to sustainability? Exactly. It's just as important as what is sustainability, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, and it's kind of a moving target too, right? And uh, of course, these are always perceptions are always evolving, and one of, one of the evolving perceptions that that Anthony and I have been been talking about a bit is the this kind of anti ESG backlash that at least in the U.S. is is really brewing, and you know there it's becoming. I think the term sustainability is through that becoming freighted with some of these political associations, liberal versus conservative, right? Do you see evidence of that, and you know, kind of the the analysis that your that your team does, or how do you how do you think about that from an anthropologist's perspective? Yeah, and, and just to clarify, when you talk about the anti ESG backlash, oh, like backlash, the, you know, Florida Attorney General banning oh, right. the well, you know the state I, from investing in ESG funds and like stuff like that's like the kind of the most obvious manifestations of it. I guess I'd ask if that's you view that first of all as a, a cultural thing or as sort of a political thing, and how do you kind of separate you know the headlines from the I don't know, a true or a more organic yeah. type of cultural perception. Yeah, uh, fantastic question. Here's the here's the cool thing about, I think, the, the way one would use anthropology. What anthropology is really doing is it's saying, I want to zoom in on parts of culture that care about sustainability. So really, when we're studying sustainability, let's say around cleaning, we're zooming into that part of culture that actually cares about it and then figuring out, you know, to your point, Anthony, what else is attached to it? What are the other requirements that we have to meet in order to make this exciting for people? So in this sense, what happens is 
the backlash people or, you know, people who don't believe in it are not part of that community anyway. So mm. you don't really get their perspective when we're studying sustainability. If we have to get their perspective, really what we're studying more broadly uh, is, you know, maybe taking even a step back and going one step further back in sort of abstraction to really understand issues broadly. And then you'll find, you know, sustainability is not showing up or is not the top issue for the entire country as a whole. I don't know, it's seven or eight. And number one is something else, right? Nationalism or I don't know, sense of community <laughs> or whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why I say, I think this is a cool thing is it allows us to see the natural makeup of human beings, demographics, socio-demographics, right? Uh, belief systems, allows us to see the natural makeup of human beings around a community that as it's naturally forming. And what it does is, you know, as a researcher, this, this is sort of my, my long standing challenge with corporations. Corporations love to say, I want to go after Gen Xers and Gen Yers or whatever. And what this allows us to do is tell them, Let's stop using some arbitrarily defined scale based on which year you were born. But instead, let's look, you care about sustainability? Fine. Let's look at what beliefs and what types of human beings are really shaping that landscape. And that's who you need to target. That's who you, you need to build products for. There's no point in building products for, you know, I don't know, a single mom. I'm generalizing here, but... Uh, a single mom who's very tight on a budget, has three kids, living in Florida, conservative, doesn't believe in uh, climate change. Why try to design a sustainable cleaning product that's 40% more expensive for her? She's not going to buy it. I'm curious as to how, you know, there's this product-centric sort of view of, of leveraging this anthropological insight. But I'm curious in the context of long-term innovation, you know, a lot of the technologies on the chemicals or materials or energy side, these are things that are taking maybe five years, seven years, 10 years to bring to fruition, but are very much impacted by consumer perception. You know, you can look at the issue of plastic waste and the kind of sustainability there. That's very much a, a consumer perception and a, I think an anthropological issue in that sense. So maybe just a, a simpler question to start, what's the level of ability to forecast or to predict these trends? How early can you spot a trend? Can you say like, hey, this is gonna be an important issue five, six, seven years down the line. So there's time for basic R&D as opposed to the more you know, targeted product development, which has a shorter lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. In essence, what we're doing with anthropology is so we're, we're scraping anything and everything people talk about on the internet. The idea being, I want to understand how human beings relate words to one another. So if you kind of, if you were to close your eyes and imagine it resembles the universe. You know, so you'll use the physics analogy, resembles the universe. And there are all these galaxies. Galaxies are nothing but clusters of language. And these galaxies exist around, there's a galaxy around sustainability. There's a galaxy around, you know, I don't know, plastic waste and so on. And there's millions and millions of these. But they also all, and, and I, I know I'm butchering physics here a little bit, but I'm going to do that anyway. Uh, but there's also a natural intersection point from one galaxy to the next. And so in essence, what happens is when you model data this way, 
you can figure out that if your galaxy is around plastic waste, you can figure out what is on the edges of that galaxy and mm -hmm. what secondary tertiary context is it getting placed into. So one way to do that is you can take an issue like waste and then you can figure out what is on the edges of this galaxy. Do the technologies I care about, do they sit there right now? If the answer is yes, that's very good. That means we know it's usually a three to five year timeline. If it's not even in the galaxy, that means it's a five plus year timeline. And we know this in the last decade of doing this research and tracking the pace of development. If something is meanwhile at the core of that galaxy, we know it's a one to two year timeline, right? So there's a, there's a very um, scientific way that we use a lot of basic mathematics regression analysis to basically predict the movement and shift of these because we have so much data month over month showing how language and these clusters of language are changing. So one way to come at it is you take a big issue like waste and then you figure out where certain technologies fit on that scale. The other way to come at it is start with the technology. So, you know, great example, uh, I don't know, I think FD, the FDA hadn't even approved allulose when one of our clients said, hey, wow, what does a consumer think about allulose, right? And in that situation, what we actually did was worked backwards to figure out what it, allulose sits on the edge of what culture. And the funny thing was, back then, it was on the edge of the sugar, reduced sugar culture. Today, it doesn't sit on the edge. It doesn't even sit within the reduced sugar culture. It sits within the culture of fermentation and gut health. Mm. Now, whether that's technically right or wrong, it doesn't even matter. What matters is the consumer is clearly confused about what this thing is. And the reason I mention that example is then that tells us from a technology perspective, we've got work to do here. Right. We can't just introduce this into an innovation and go, people are going to buy it because people have no idea what it is. That's really fascinating. And just to clarify, allulose, that's a, a sugar alternative, right? It's a sugar supposed to be, I think they call it a fermented sugar. I think that's where some of the some of the associations with fermentation come in. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, consumers are deeply confused about stuff like this. Yeah. So one of the other areas that we you know, try to track and predict besides just technology development, you know, increasingly for areas like plastic waste is a great example of it. Also is uh, kind of how the policy landscape is evolving. Uh, what are the decisions, you know, is there going to be a single use plastics ban and is there going to be uh, an extended producer responsibility rules and things like that? Are there ways that you, you know, you talk to clients about leveraging some of the insights around meaning that, that come out of your research to think about how that might influence the direction of policy in different areas yeah, specifically uh, thinking of the how do we go from you know al gore to joe biden right on, yeah. on sustainability <laughs> <laughs> absolutely because the thing is you know i guess there's two ways you can address policy one is you vote a better person in uh who's really passionate about something um, the other way is you just create a groundswell of interest and demand. And I think, I think time and time again, I don't mean to sound too cynical, but I think we've proven that just voting somebody in doesn't really solve any problems. The <laughs> groundswell of, of demand is really our best route to make any kind of real inroads. So I think the moment you go there, it becomes very interesting because now we can figure out how certain issues are looked at in our society, in our culture, what the biggest problems are around them and how we can change 
what these things mean in people's minds. So, you know, great example, a while back, um, we had the chance to contribute into some of the work that, um, you know, this is the previous administration was doing around uh, chronic pain. So through one of their vendors, we got invited to to contribute into that work. And, the, and it was very cool because we got to teach them about what chronic pain means to Americans. And guess what? It was much beyond the obvious things of, you know, lack of treatment or opioid addiction. The biggest thing was, was this realization that a lot more people believe they have chronic pain than they really, than scientifically um, or medically, uh, mm. you know, sort of defined, right? So the medical profession may say, no, you don't have chronic pain, but I believe I have it. And now I'm going and seeking solutions. And if the medical profession doesn't address me, address that for me, I go all kinds of alternative routes and end up somewhere. Um, so it's that type of stuff where understanding what chronic pain is and how people think about it and what role the opioid addiction plays in the lives and minds of people who don't actually deal with it can make a huge difference because now you know, governing bodies, politicians, uh, nonprofits can look at that and go, can we create a groundswell of demand? What is the lever we need to push on? You know, specifically, what's the language we need to speak in order to create interest? And I think that's where a lot of it gets missed, right? Because if we speak the same language that the consumer is already speaking, we have a much better chance of, you know, I mean, it's the old adage of, you know, you're trying to teach your kids something, you got to get down to their level. You can't, you know, can't use your your PhD to try to educate, uh, you know, an eight year old on, I don't know, a topic like sustainability, right? And so it's the, it's the same idea. Speaking of educating eight year olds, I, I want to talk about corporate culture a little bit, um, <laughs> yeah. because I, I think you kind of alluded to this or mentioned this earlier, but you know, corporate culture is kind of its own anthropological culture. There's a set of meanings there. You have innovation terms and professionals and structures. So I, I'm curious as to how you view corporate innovation from a, an anthropological perspective, how it's evolved, and just how, how you see that interacting with these, I don't know, what real people think about certain issues and, and how that how that sort of either creates or maybe doesn't create successful innovation outcomes. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing I struggle with in corporate innovation culture is this desire for tangible proof. And usually tangible proof comes in the form of verbatims on the consumer side and existing products on the technology side. Mm. And whenever I see that, you know, it just breaks my heart. Uh, because if there's already a plethora of products out there, maybe let's call a spade a spade. It ain't innovation. Uh, just because you now have a new MBA term called fast follow, that's not innovation now. Uh, so that's one side of it. The other side of it is, you know, this this obsession with verbatims. I think the biggest issue is if the consumer, and I think there's a Steve Jobs quote around this. Uh, there's a reason why I don't ask people what they want because they don't know what they want. Uh, and, you know, the, the challenge is how do you create a culture that has the guts to think independently and to come up with ideas independently? 
yeah, I think that that is, you know, for people coming oftentimes from science and engineering backgrounds, right, which is what we we deal with a lot, particularly in, you know, chemicals and energy and non, you know, other B2B type of industries, I, I, they are maybe even even more so that way. Um, but I, I agree, like kind of empowering them or encouraging them to, to be open to things that aren't proved, you know, cut and dry to a, to a, you know, a scientific paper level of rigor is, is, is really tough. But what have you, have you done or seen that helps you to get, to get past that? Or how have you seen organizations help them yeah. be able to get past that? Yeah. G- great question. I mean, there, there are a couple of things. One is we try to create a sandbox where there's zero discussions of solutions and only discussions of, of needs. So when you create a sandbox like that, uh, then it pushes people in innovation to come up with the solutions. So no, we're not going to put inspiring alternative solutions in there into the sandbox. The sandbox is going to only have the why uh, and maybe a little bit of you know the what. But beyond that, the how, everything else, you got to figure it out. Um, that's, that's one way that we've seen it work really, really effectively. Many of our clients are, have gotten very good at that. Uh, they deliberately push their organizations to, you know, to, for example, you know, immediately not jump to, Hey, let me, let me look at adjacent industries and see what they're doing. So I can just copy something out of there. Uh, and I think oftentimes, even if the intention isn't to copy something, I think that's the human tendency, isn't it? When we see something, we feel like it's safer because we've already seen it, even though we don't realize it. I think the field of behavioral economics has a term coined for that. And that just keep, creates this recency bias and makes us believe that it's more believable or something to that effect. Um, so, I mean, that's that's one thing. I think the other thing I see a lot is uh, a lot of innovation groups are really focused on upskilling their teams. So, you know, for a while, I think organizations love just hiring vendors to do everything for them. And now they're realizing they need to actually build these skill sets internally. Um, so I am seeing a lot of focus on upskilling. So, for example, learning different techniques and methodologies uh, you know, getting more savvy with different types of data. And in particular, obviously, the AI revolution is upon us. And mm-hmm. so, you know, being able to leverage technology and data very effectively, I think we're seeing a lot of that right now, which I think are very positive indicators, because I think the more we can give people the confidence to be able to think independently and act independently, I think the better innovation outcomes will ultimately be. Ujwal, I want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. It's a great conversation. Thank you. It was fun. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.